0: You'll turn with me to the passage in which today's teaching is based. It comes from Luke chapter 9, and I'll be reading from verses 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9, and I'll be reading from verses 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, that's Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And this is God's word. The past few months, we've been looking at some passages uh, in the gospels where Jesus Christ says some hard things. Hard things about who he is, hard things about his kingdom, hard, hard things about what it means to follow him. And a lot of people here have come to Metro with your own expectations, with your own understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a part of the church, And so if you are one of those people, then we have to pay very careful attention to what these hard sayings of Jesus mean, because it's not just about the fact that they're difficult. These are sayings that take a while for us to absorb, digest, chew on a little bit so that we can savor the richness of what Jesus is saying and maybe even apply it and take it in to our own lives. Here we see three men, three men who actually don't get Jesus who don't know what it means to follow Jesus. And and through them, we're gonna see three things. One, what it means, one of the implications of being a Christian. Two, why it's so easily to miss who Jesus is. And three, how do you get him? What it means to be a Christian, or at least one of the implications. Why we so easily miss who Jesus is. And lastly then, then how do you get Jesus? How do you get him? First, what it means to be a Christian. In each of these cases, someone says, I want to follow you. And in each of these cases, Jesus responds with a lesson about the cost of following Jesus. Jesus is making very clear that being a Christian is more than about a change in your behavior or a change in your functional, functional lifestyle, it's rather a change in status, a change in position, a change in your nature. I'm not saying that there's no outward change. What I'm saying is that being a Christian means that your outward change is not what defines you. Your outward change is not what gets you there. It's like a change in citizenship. What do I mean by that? Look, you can study You can study the history of France. You can be fluent in French. You can enjoy French cuisine and learn how to cook French cuisine. You can follow French fashion, dissect French film and French art. Maybe you understand and you've studied French law. You've purchased tickets to France and you have plans to go to Paris. But that does not make you a French citizen. Maybe you have friends and all of them are French citizens. Maybe they all say, well, when I look at you, you're French. You live like a French citizen. You act like a French citizen. But the thing is, before that, you were 100% not French. And now, even with all the knowledge you've gained, and even with all the things that you practice, you're still not 100% French. But I love being French. (laughs) I love being a French citizen. This is a kind of ridiculous illustration, right? What makes you a French citizen is not about any of those things. Legally, forensically, it's about a change in status, a change in position, a change in nature, a change in your citizenship, and to follow Jesus, to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, is not so much that it places a priority on a change in morals or a change in behavior as it does a change in status. John chapter 3, Jesus Christ encounters Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious man, very well respected in society. Yet Jesus Christ says to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You have to be born into this new citizenship. In other words, for a Christian, that change that you undergo in your life is so deeply renewing, so deeply shaping, that Jesus Christ himself likens it to new birth. If you're born in one country, You're pretty much, you're automatically a citizen of that country. But if you come from another country, there's this process of citizenship where you relinquish your old citizenship. It's called what? Naturalization. Naturalization because it's really a change in your nature. That's very important because there are people in this room right now, there are people in this room who think, when they think about what 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 makes them a Christian, They immediately refer to a change in morals, a change in lifestyle, a change in behavior, a change in theology. Now, sure, it's definitely not less than that. What Jesus Christ is talking about here is a change from one kingdom to another, from one king to another. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom? It's the power of God external to you. You can't create that yourself. You can't generate it on your own. It's a power outside of you. Martin Luther, the great theologian referred to this as an alien righteousness. Alien, external, outside, supernatural, coming into your life, and this power is coming into the world. Jesus Christ's kingdom is coming. And when it comes, it will undo all the sin Brokenness and injustice and oppression and sadness. That's why he calls it the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. What it takes is not a change in your circumstances or a change in your morals or behavior. Not first. But what it takes is a surrender to the true king, the true savior from living a life where you're trying to save yourself because you are your own king, and so you're trying to undo the sin and the brokenness and the guilt and the injustice and the oppression all by yourself. But when you do surrender, that power of the kingdom, the power of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus, the redemption and restoration and healing of Jesus enters into your life and immediately starts to change you. It starts to shape you. Functionally, at the moment of salvation, you may be a mess, but that power has entered in and starts to shape you. Your status has already changed. Your citizenship has changed. You've crossed over from death to life. None of the three men in today's passage really got that. Why'd they miss it? Why'd they miss Jesus? Why didn't they get him? Why didn't they get the kingdom? Well, in verse 57, the first man comes to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. There are no conditions. Why? He clearly saw Jesus as a revolutionary. He saw him as a powerful man, a leader. This man's going to change the world. He's got my vote. What does Jesus say? Verse 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man, the son of man, the king, The men of all men, the representative of all men has no place to lay his head. What he's saying is, look at me. The kingdom comes through me, but I don't have status. I don't have wealth. I don't have credentials. I don't have influence. I don't even have a home, he says. And so that must mean then that the kingdom of God is not about wealth. It's not about worldly status or credentials or influence or what neighborhood you live in or what school you graduated from. That must mean that the kingdom of God is not about anything that the world considers great, that the world deems successful, because I have none of these things, he says. But if you look around, people are being healed. Lives are changing. In other words, everything that you may think that will make someone successful. This is the way to be noticed. This is the way to become great. This is the way to be acceptable. This is how you get by in life. You need to build wealth. You need to to build your pedigree. Work hard, climb that ladder, claw away at it, reach for it. Jesus says, I never did any of that. I don't have any of that. The kingdom of God one day will bring a greater reality greater than anything that anyone has ever dreamed. So it's going to take more than anything we could ever accomplish on our own. One day there will be no more death, no more tears, no more fear, no more injustice, no more oppression, no more brokenness. Think about all the broken relationships you have in your life. There will be no more broken relationships. There'll be no more sin. But Jesus says, look at me, and I'm homeless. And if you follow me, that means that you may or may not have wealth. You may or may not have status. You may or may not have power. You may or may not be acceptable to people around you. But my kingdom is not built on worldly wealth and status and power. It's built on generosity. It's built on humility. It's built on weakness and it will come through brokenness. And you as a result, if you're going to follow me, you must be at war with yourself to let go of these things that the world values, to not rely on these things that the world values. Jesus Christ is ushering in a new kingdom. That means you have a new identity, an everlasting life, a new life. Nothing you are working for today will last forever. But if you look at Jesus, he's bringing the kingdom, an eternal kingdom. How does he bring that kingdom? Through homelessness, suffering, defeat, humiliation, and death. And he's telling this man, do you really get me? Do you really get the cost? Are you really ready for this? Jesus is not trying to inspire you or manipulate you into, with his lies or, or promises that he doesn't intend to keep. Rather, he tells you up front that if you're going to follow him, you may not be successful. You may not be able to achieve your life agenda. You may not even be accepted by other people. You may not have an easy life. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But you must loosen your grip you must surrender these things to the king. You know what that means? You may not be a killer at work. You may not be that closer that you wanted to be. You may start to treat some people differently than the way other people at your level treat people. Instead of advancing yourself at the cost of other people at work, you're advancing others at the cost of yourself. You may become more vocal for people who are underrepresented. You may become more vocal for people who are weaker, who don't perform well. Maybe it means as a parent, you will parent your children differently than people in today's standards. Maybe that means that when you give, when you look at your income, you're going to give more and you're going to save less. Maybe you're going to be a much more generous person. Maybe that means, as a result, you're going to get passed over at work because you don't act like people, like leaders at your workplace. Maybe some people will leave you out of things. They don't feel comfortable around you because of your values. Maybe that means other people, even in the church, may exclude you. Maybe some people will risk, maybe you're going to risk being taken advantage of. But greatness will not be defined according to worldly standards. And so, because you have a deeper humility, a deeper compassion, the compassion of Christ, the humility of Christ, the surrender of Christ, Jesus has become your king, then you will also be endowed with the courage, a greater courage to follow him and obey him. No matter what, Christians will never be surprised if they suffer, especially if they suffer because they have made decisions as a Christian. To know Jesus, to be a Christian, is to understand suffering, to understand tears, to understand betrayal, to understand humiliation, to understand sacrifice. You know why? Because we serve a king who, under, who has suffered, who have cried tears, who have been humiliated, who has been betrayed, who died. And yet, through that, you will understand resilience and endurance, forgiveness, bravery, courage, because you see the real reality beneath that visible reality that the world follows, and you get the cost, and it's worth it. The first man, he didn't get Jesus. He didn't get the cross, The cost. He didn't get the cost of following Jesus. The other two men, maybe they understood the cost. I don't know. Doesn't say. But they definitely didn't get the priority of following Jesus. So you have the first man, he didn't get the cost of following Jesus. The other two men, they didn't get the priority, the urgency of following Jesus. Jesus says, Follow me. And you know what they say? Verse 59 and 61. And I've kind of put it together. Yes, I'll follow you. But first, let me bury my father. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus responds, let the dead bury the dead. Verse 62, don't you dare look back, he says. Now, some of you are thinking right now, well, that's pretty harsh. I mean, a guy couldn't even bury his father. The guy couldn't even go back to his home and tell them he's leaving. I want to submit to you that that's not likely what Jesus meant, and it's not likely what they meant. Remember, Jesus was with his disciples. He literally lived with his disciples. And so to follow him in ancient times, that meant to leave your house. But in ancient times, a lot like a lot of Eastern cultures today, there's nothing more important than your family. Your family is your life. Your family is your lifeline. You never, ever turn your back on your family. You never leave your family. Leaving your family means to cut them off from their lives and to be cut off. This isn't like modern times where you just get in a car and drive off. Hey, I got another career, another job. It wasn't like that. What your family did, that was your livelihood. To walk away from them was certain death, and it would devastate them. In Jewish law, if a young man's father was actually dying, you were required, you were required by law to sit beside him until he passed and then you would bury him. Jesus would never violate that law. He would never violate that. It was very likely, it was very likely that this father was not on his deathbed. deathbed. Basically, the man was saying something like this. Look, Jesus, I want to follow you. But to leave my father right now, while he's still alive, it would devastate him. He will be so disappointed in me bear that. I can't bear the weight of that. I can't bear the guilt of that. I can't, I can't risk this. You know our culture. I can't do that. So I'm going to wait until after he dies. Then I'll follow you. Let me bury my father first. The third man saying something similar. I'm going to follow you, but I'm not ready to leave yet. Let me first be in a place where I can say goodbye. Where I'm ready, I got my affairs together, I'm ready to go. In both cases, there's no urgency because Jesus wasn't the priority. In both cases, Jesus is saying, they're, or they're saying, Jesus, I wanna follow you, but I've got some conditions, some provisos, some qualifications, some caveats here. In both cases, they wanna follow Jesus on their terms. And to both cases, Jesus is saying this, if you come to me with conditions, if you come to me with on your own terms, if you come to me with your qualifiers, then when things are hard, when you start to suffer, when trouble, you're going to start looking back. You're going to look back because you came to me as really just a, a negotiable improvement. I am a negotiable improvement in your life when you're supposed to come to me as the ultimate priority. With great urgency. You want to follow me? I want total surrender, nothing less than total commitment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was an old German Lutheran preacher that lived during the time of Nazi Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. There are folks here who say, Well, you know, I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for me. I mean, let's just leave it at that. I'm good with that. I get to go to heaven, you know, I'll go to church, do some stuff, but that's enough. Okay, what you're really saying is, what you're really saying is, Jesus Christ is my savior, but he's not my king. He's not my Lord. And You can't have that, because think about this. If Jesus Christ is your savior, but he's not Lord, Then sin wins in the end. Jesus Christ has no control. Sin will ultimately win. But if Jesus Christ is your Lord and yet not your Savior, then that means sin wins. There's no salvation. You still have to earn it on your own, and you can't. The only way that Jesus Christ is Savior is if He is Lord. And so to submit to Jesus Christ as your Savior is to submit to him as your Lord. What does that mean? That means you've got to remove your conditions. You've got to remove the barriers that are in your way. All those things that you're using as negotiating points that get in the way of serving Jesus Christ as your king. You know, We live in a society where we don't have kings in in this society. We don't know the implications of serving a king. We get to vote for our leaders. We get to talk about our leaders at no risk, pretty much complete freedom to do that. Whether or not you know, you're know you in arguments and endless debates and, and fights and all that kind of stuff aside, it is perfectly legal to do that. Everything comes to a vote. What Jesus is saying is, there are no conditions in following me. You can't negotiate You can't come to me on your own terms. For some of you, that biggest barrier in your life is your family. That family that may have brought you into the church may actually be a barrier in your life. Maybe your parents are a barrier in your life. Maybe your career is that barrier. That's your but first. Very tangible things. Other people, much less tangible. Maybe it's security that need for security. Maybe it's approval. Maybe it's some pursuit of happiness. One of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. It came out in like nineteen early 80s, 1984-ish. Won Best Picture. Won an Oscar for Best Picture. True story about a man who was an Olympic athlete. He was a sprinter. He was a Christian. Later on, he went to China. and There he died. But he was going up against a man, a Jewish man named Harold Abrams. And Harold Abrams is just obsessed with winning. You know why? Because he was a Jewish man living in in an anti-Semitic world, right, during the time of World War I, World War II, right, in that 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 era. And so he just wants to prove himself. He wants to beat everybody in his way because that way he can say, I've proven myself. I've arrived. He's just desperate to win and to win and to win. And at the climax of this movie, he turns to his friend and he says, I don't even know what I'm pursuing anymore. I don't even know what it is I'm running for. How do you identify what your terms are? How do you identify if there's some thing in your life that's non-negotiable that has made Jesus negotiable? How do you identify that barrier that may be in your life? Ask yourself, what is my greatest nightmare? What's the one thing, a lot of us have many things, but what's the one thing that if I lost it, my life is over? It'll just ruin me. For some of you, it's tangible wealth, a relationship. For others, it's less tangible. You need the approval. You're desperate to maintain your reputation, you need the approval of other people in your life. Whatever it is, that thing is likely your biggest. But first, Jesus. A Christian says this, all my life I've been at war with God. All my life I've been at war with God. I've been at war with God for control over my life and now, now I give him my unconditional surrender. That means in every circumstance, in every decision in my life. There are other people in this room that are like this, Lord, I want to be a Christian But right now, I'm in a relationship. And I know you call me to be sexually pure, but I got this, I mean, I need this relationship. I need that, I need to feel loved. I need to get that thrill of relationship. Uh, Or maybe it's, Lord, I'm in this church because I just need to get married first. Then I'll figure this out. I'll give you more. I'll give you more of my time. I'll serve you more. What does Jesus say to that? Let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. What he's really saying is this, if you can't take me in, hold me, my words, my calling, my promises, my righteousness, my richness, the richness of being in me, the kingliness of my righteousness, if you can't hold my work, the work that I have done for you on the cross, as your ultimate priority, and something else is delaying your total commitment to me, you are as good as dead. Because if your career, or your relationships, or your family acts as that condition that keeps you from coming to me, that barrier, What you're really saying is you're trusting in those things. Those things are your Savior. And we just said, whatever is your Savior is your Lord. That means that if you trust in those things as your Savior, you will serve and obey those things first as your priority. Those things are your king. Those things won't last. They cannot save you. They cannot help you cross over from one kingdom to another, one citizenship to another. And because you've placed your eternal hope on something else apart from me, Jesus says, you will die. You will die. Some of you are constantly swayed. I mean, you're straddling two worlds. It's almost like you want dual citizenship. You know, you think the gospel because God is so gracious that you're going to get dual citizenship. And you're straddling between two worlds, and you're wondering, why am I so anxious all the time? Why am I so unhappy all the time? Because you're trying to serve two kings. It's exhausting. One king tells you the rest, rest, rest in me. The other, the other king tells you, you better work, work, work if you want to get there. You want to serve your family? You better work at it. You want to grow in wealth? You better work at it. You better, you better step over people, treat people, or do whatever it takes to move up. You will never really experience the life-shaping joy of following Jesus because you're constantly being swayed by things. And you're, and you're constantly thinking about what you left behind in your commitment because you can never fully commit to one and you can never fully commit to the other. So you're constantly looking back in your life. It creates anxiety, sadness, a depression, and unhappiness. You know why? Because part of you still believes. You know why you're doing that? Part of you still believes Jesus Do you know what I've surrendered? Do you know what I've sacrificed to follow you, at least in part? I've given up things. What you're saying is this. I still deserve something for the sacrifice that I've made for you. You're not focusing on Christ's sacrifice for you. You're just thinking about the cost that you paid for him. You're still negotiating with God. You're still unhappy because you're negotiating with God. I want to remind you. You can say to yourself, you've got to repeat it in a way that it just explodes in your heart with joy. You know, that's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. You've got to remind yourself over and over. I don't care if you listen to music or hymns, poetry, readings, community group, all those resources that God has provided, plug into the church so that you have a daily reminder Of what? I have Jesus. Christ is mine forevermore. I am a child of God. I have His glory. I have His power. The power of the Holy Spirit that gives me new life and raised Jesus from the dead. That power resides in me. That means that I have the power. Christ has already defeated sin. That means that I have the power to surrender the power to let go. I have his kingdom entered into me, the fruit of the Spirit growing and planted in me. And I trust that that's way more than enough because I can take Jesus at his word. Look, it's okay to want to get married. It's okay to want a good career. But if any of these things becomes more important than having new life in Jesus, having intimacy and delight in the Father, you are going to be working and working, fighting and battling anxiety, never knowing where you stand with God or with others, constantly being depressed and and overworked and exhausted. We talked about the first man not understanding the cost. But first... Those things have cost, too. That has a cost, too. So you can live for the king. You can live for Jesus. Or you can choose not to live for Jesus and find out that that's impossible in the end. How are we going to live for Jesus? How are we going to get Jesus? What Jesus says here is, it sounds harsh. But notice, he doesn't wince. Man says, I follow you wherever you go. He doesn't say, You are a liar. I know you and what you want. He doesn't say that, right? These men say, But first, let me, go, let me go bury my father. Jesus doesn't say, You are not committed, you sniveling, you know, whiny little guy here. That's not what he does, right? That's not what he says. You know why? Look at the grace of Jesus. Look at the patience of God. He gets you, He understands. No one understands the cost of following God. No one understands the cost of obeying God more than Jesus. Jesus Christ says, the son of man has no place to rest his head. In other words, Jesus, the king, the son of man, he gave up his status, ultimate status. He gave up his position, ultimate position. He left the throne, the ultimate throne. He stepped out of eternity. He came down to suffer, be humiliated, be betrayed, die. This was the cost of his obedience for Jesus to remain on mission. The second man said, let me bury my father first. In other words, let me see my father buried. I don't want to do this to my father. What does Jesus do? At the cross, the father saw his son buried. Most of you will understand if you have children, there's no greater grief than losing your son, losing your child. And there at the cross, the father had to turn his face away from his son. All the while, he's dying, bleeding, suffering, and dies. And Jesus didn't cry out, I can't take this anymore. Dad, come help me. He didn't say, in fact, the father offered his son. Jesus offered himself to obey the call of God because Jesus placed his father, his relationship with God as his ultimate priority. And what did he do as a result? He left home. He left his lifeline. He left his source. And he was buried. He died. Why? So that we... Loosen our grip on the things that we call home. So that those things don't have control. So that we would not be spiritually dead. Jesus Christ went into the grave so that we could come out of the grave. Jesus Christ went into the grave so that we could be given new life. We would be resurrected on the cross. The third man, he said... Let me say goodbye to my family, right? That's what he said. Let me delay a little bit. Jesus Christ never delayed. There was an urgency. He never delayed his goodbye. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. Why have you forsaken me? In other words, this is the ultimate homelessness. I've lost my ultimate home. My home was in the Father. The Father was in me. And now the Trinity has been ripped apart. I've lost my home. I have no place. This is the ultimate fatherlessness. I have become disowned by God. This has devastated my Father as I die on the cross. And it has devastated me. You know, this passage, when he says, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't refer to God as his Father. Why? That great hymn, he left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. The entire time, on the cross, as his father left him for dead, the world has already rejected him. He was reciting scripture, Psalm 22. That meant that even though all the while, darkness has come into his life, completely overshadowed him. God was still the ultimate priority. He trusted his word. Never waver to the end. Faithful to the end. Always on mission and so on the cross, he turns, as he's dying, he turns to the criminal on one side and says, today you will be with me in paradise. He's thinking about Mary. He's thinking about his disciple John. He says, Father, forgive them. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Through the brokenness, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Jesus, I mean, why did he do it? Hebrews chapter 12 says, Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, why did he suffer? Why did he endure? Why did he sacrifice? Why did he bleed? Why was he buried? Jesus Christ, not once, as he was on the cross, or ever in his life, looked back and said, my God, why have you forsaken me? I had a throne. I had a mansion. I had power. I had a position. I had a pedigree. I had all these things. Why did I do this for these guys? That's not what he did. You know what Hebrews 12 says? Who for the joy set before him. In other words, Jesus Christ never looked back. He looked ahead. You know what he looked ahead at? You know what he was thinking about, reflecting on? What was that joy? You were that joy. The church, his bride. those beautiful movies, where the man dies for the, sacrifices himself for the person he loves in the movie. We all love movies like that. You know why? Because it's part of our spiritual DNA. We're triggered by that. It's written into our hearts, the love of God for his people. Jesus Christ is the ultimate love story. That's why he did it. And he did it for the joy. He wasn't like, dirty job, someone's got to do it glad to do it. It was his joy. You know what that means? Jesus Christ understood the cost. He counted the cost. But he gladly paid it. The glory of the Father has placed you as his priority, as his love. Glad to do it. To know that you wouldn't be homeless. To know that you will always have a place. I mean, we worry so much about our jobs. You have a place, there is a certainty. Do you trust that? A lot of us in jobs that make us miserable because of what the job actually gets us. We're just too ashamed to admit that what we're really looking for is status, security. To know that you wouldn't be homeless. Jesus became homeless, ultimately homeless. To know that you wouldn't be rejected. You have a place by the Father's side. So that you would ever have to be spiritually forsaken or buried. He endured the ultimate forsakenness. And when you see that Jesus never looked back for you, you won't look back. You will look ahead at the joy that is Christ. You're pursuing wealth, here's ultimate wealth. Make Christ your treasure. You're tied to your family in a way that you can't break free, make God the perfect Father. Be intimate with God. Now you can, you have access. You can still love your family. You can still honor your parents. But never above Jesus. Never above the call. Never above his mission. Stop your delay, make him your priority. Let's pray.